Welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser. My guest today is Natasha Pickowitz. She's a pastry chef based in New York City. Um, And I know her from her days in Montreal, where in addition to her uh, cooking work, I knew her uh, as a writer and as a music promoter and enthusiast. Um, When we started talking uh, in the episode, I I thought, man, we're really, really off track. But um, when we do lock into the music talk, she gets into some pretty deep stuff and some pretty key things as far as the whole uh, purpose and mission of this podcast and project. So I found it really interesting. I hope you do too. Okay, so Natasha Pickowitz. So you're mainly known uh, as a chef, I think it's, it's, uh, it's fair to say, and, and as someone who uh, uses your, your chef skills and connections to do cool like events and social um, projects and awareness raising. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't go to culinary school and I don't have that formal training. I'm kind of more interested in the role that food plays and pastry specifically, since I'm a pastry chef, in sort of um, creating community or bringing people together. And, you know, obviously I love music so much. And, you know, for me, figuring out the ways that those things kind of inform each other or how, you know, baking or pastry is kind of a tool that can be used to bring people together um, to enjoy art or to enjoy music. So um, I kind of try to look at it through that lens, you know, as as kind of a a way of uniting people um, together. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, because you're you're sort of, uh, these days, I think people know you mainly as as a chef, but what, like, and we knew each other through like a, a, a few different connections, like working at the Depeneur Le Pickup in Montreal. Oh yeah, where you you I think got your start right as a as a pastry chef there. And that's a great example. I mean, obviously, like that place was also so formative to me. You know, Bernie was in Lesbians in Ecstasy, a band that I knew really well before I met her and moved to Montreal. So for me, it was also kind of inspiring to see how that kind of uh, queer punk lens could al- was also used as a way to make food and to take care of people through that also. And I think the pickup is a great example of how, you know, they kind of approach all of those things holistically, like food, music, reading, like it's just the way that you like live your life and it's like your identity. So you know, when I was there, I wasn't just doing all the baking and all the pastries, although I was doing that too. You know, it was also like little film screenings, tiny concerts in front of the beer fridge, you know, little dinners and parties in the back patio. Like that, that was like what I really loved to do, you know, it was all of those kind of fun events. Yeah, I, I remember you being the events manager there. And in fact, I you must have been there when I started because I don't remember meeting you right away, but I saw a picture, like one of those things where they show your old pictures on Facebook, and it was like a staff party, which was actually my first shift, and you were in the, in the picture. So I was like, oh, I guess I guess we did. But that was like a classic depth thing where they, like, I was hired, and they were like, yeah, come to the 
staff party and like you can clean up after we all leave to to, to go to the after party. <laughs> so like I show up and like the first thing that happens is like everyone's just getting wasted and like pranking me. Like but like I went to to the cash register and someone had printed out a ticket that said, Fuck you, Malcolm. <laughs> I was like, okay. I see this is going to be like a kind of situation. I I think we started right around the same time, kind of fall, winter of of 2010, I want to say. Yeah. Um, And at the time, Beaver Shepherd was the head chef at Pickup. Yeah. And I remember like that same feeling of like, Am I being, yeah, it, am I being put through something right now? Like, is he trying to see my metal, you know? And, uh, but, you know, I think pretty quickly we all became so close and it became such like a, really the first kind of example of like a kitchen dynamic and kind of um, group of people that I was like, whoa, I'm so addicted to this feeling of like friendship and camaraderie and, you know, being around like other interesting people, you know? Yeah, for sure. It was really like a, it was a real community. Um, and I guess, I guess, you know, still is or will be again. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, I'm already like getting off track from, from my, from the, the, <laughs> the first point I was trying to make, which is that uh, you, I knew you as a chef, but also you were a writer, uh, a, quite a good writer. I would add, I don't know if many people know that about you, but you did movie reviews. Um, when I was editing the film section at the Montreal Mirror, RIP. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because I um, I just moved a few weeks ago back in December. And, you know, I don't know about you, but like whenever I move, I get really bogged down and kind of like rifling through past sort of things I just cannot part with. And I found this like Montreal kind of section of all of these clips that I had saved, I, sh- I should take photos of them and share them with you because a lot of that print stuff that we did, I mean, I don't know if any of that stuff lives online really. So I'm so glad that I kept like all of these clippings, but I found like <laughs> the like Montreal mirror, you know, the 150 word blurbs of like the movies no one else wanted to review. And yeah. you're like, I will give you $25 to watch this like Ethan Hawke movie no one will see. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm so absolutely. glad I have I have those things, you know. Uh, you know what? That's actually I mean it, it all ties together because I feel like that uh I, I did those blurbs too when I started out and uh and they paid 20 bucks. Um and uh <laughs> and I remember that there was a I went to a Christmas party that the Christmas 2010 of the Mirror and my editor Mark Sletsky uh like I had done one blurb that week and I was like, hey, so is there anything else like coming up? He's like, nope. And I was like, wow, like I made twenty dollars this week. Like I can't, I can't live on that. And then like the next day, I saw that the, the pickup was hiring, and I was like, okay, I needed, I need a job. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> totally. And then of course, the way things always are, like the day I started the pickup, Mark was like, I, I'm leaving my job. Like you can have the job now. That's so I could right. Those things. Wow, that's how it always but, goes, really. Yeah. But um, it, it's actually kind of a funny or tragic story when you asked about the Mirror's online archives because they, you, you know, classic uh, Quebec or our corporate overlords, uh, they they shut it down. They, they like uh, basically like flipped the off switch on the website, yeah. 15 years worth of, of uh, stuff. 
and uh, and then subsequently, they sold it to an Australian sex toy company. <laughs> so if you go to MontrealMirror.com, you'll find like maybe like ten archived articles on like a sexy on like sexy topics. And then like a bunch of ads for this Australian sex toy company. That is such, it's, it's like a, fitting, but it's a shame, but it's fitting somehow. Totally, yeah. totally, I mean, totally. I, you know, I um, was chatting with someone the other day and, and he was telling me how when he was in, you know, high school, he used to like follow that band Built to Spill Around on tour. And mm-hmm. it and it made me think of, so before I lived in Montreal, I lived in Ithaca and edited the arts and entertainment section of this alt-weekly called the Ithaca Times, which is very similar to the Montreal Mirror. Free weekly, you buy it for the listings. You know, there's some kind of local, kind of colorful people who are like the critics and like, you know, it was awesome. And I had this very fond memory of this great interview that I had, a conversation that I had with Doug March, the singer, the guitar player from Built to Spill or whatever. So I like go on the Ithaca Times website and yeah, none of my story, it would, they created the built out the website after I had worked at the newspaper. So none of my stories, I probably wrote hundreds of things, talked to so many interesting people because Ithaca is this great college town and close to New York. So you're, you know, there are constantly like interesting people coming and going, even though it was a small town, but, and all of those things are just kind of like gone. And the stories that I found, you know, that I had written, the byline was just like from the Ithaca times or, and I was just, right, you know, right. and I'm like, not that I need to have my name associated with something awkward I wrote when I was 22 in Ithaca necessarily but I think I'm such a completist there was a part of me that's like you know it's crazy to think of in this day and age of like you know everything is on the internet forever there are still some forms of print media that never really made that transition and those things are kind of lost you know and that's as recent as 15 years ago it's not really like that long ago no absolutely and, uh, you know, I think that when people say that, you know, the Internet is forever, I think that they forget or we forget that, like, uh, all, all that content, all that IP is owned by someone mm-hmm. and they could decide they can do what they want with it. Did the mirror have a like a print archive somewhere? Well, it's funny um, you should say that because um, another thing that Quebecor did was take the bound archives and like yeah. throw them out into in a dumpster, and, <laughs> yeah, like a class act all the way. These guys, twenty five years wow. worth of stuff in like nice leather bound volumes, threw it in a dumpster, and somebody found it or some of it, and like it's like floating around. You know, somebody. The story I heard, which I can't completely confirm or source, was that someone found a bunch of them in a dumpster, and then like some of them ended up like at a thrift store or like <laughs> some people collected them and maybe Louis Rastelli who runs archive Montreal has some of them. Uh-huh. But it's like, I, I would hope that maybe like the big library has some, but yeah, it's hard to say. It's like, but I guess, I don't know. Crazy. Look at it in the big picture. Does it really matter? Maybe not, but it's kind of a drag, you know? Totally. Yeah. It, it bummed me it was out. Ephemeral though. Yeah. You know, I remember like even at the time, you would see um, people reading the the paper and then sort of tossing it aside, and then you would see the 
the paper on the street yellowing already after one week and it just made you realize it's all kind of like just in the totally and not and not even that like you know the new york times website is that great or anything but i think that you know papers like that can archive you know stories that are decades and decades old in a way that these like kind of in more indie papers just you know can't do and that barely had a website presence like to begin with you know so it's yeah, yeah d- it's dust true. in the wind yeah it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so to get back to my, I, I, I literally had like a first sentence that I still haven't finished. But um, so what I'm I was going to say was that you, we, you, I knew you through the pickup as a chef. I knew you as a writer. And also you were involved in the music scene, uh, which you already talked about. Like you would, you would put on shows, but, you, but in a very kind of like guerrilla DIY kind of way. Totally. Yeah. I, I, when I lived in Montreal, so that was from like 2009 to 2013. Um, I was sort of coming off of this like hot, hot, hot energy of like booking, curating shows in places like Ithaca and Portland, um, San Diego, where I grew up also. Um, and when I moved to Montreal, I felt like it, it, it was kind of, it felt like the manifestation of like all of the perfect things I ever wanted to see in a underground music community, you know, like the venues that we would hang out at, whether they were like legit businesses like Casa or underground, more kind of lofty rehearsal spaces like La Brick, um, you know, Rook recording studios like Constellation, you know, I was just like, I was like, I feel like I'm with, I'm like with my people. And that's felt, you know, I think that felt so incredible because when I moved to Montreal, like I didn't know anybody, you know, and I was really starting from zero and that was really, really scary. It was super intimidating, but the music scene and and the love of music on that, especially on that local level, you know, musicians like yourself and so many other people, like, that really felt like kind of a homecoming for me, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was a, it was a special time. Um, and uh, I think, I mean, right now things are kind of like on pause as far as like a music scene or community per se, because of the pandemic. Um, but I always wonder, I mean, every once in a while, like people would say, Oh, what's the Montreal music scene like now? And I'm just like, I don't know. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, I know, my friends and, and, uh, you know, luckily through like the pickup, I was able to make friends with a bunch of people who were like way younger and cooler than me, (laughs) but funny thing, they kept aging too. And now they're (laughs) all like, you know, maybe, maybe they don't even know like what, what's, uh, what's going on at school. It is, is, that is true. And that, and that is a little bit bittersweet, I think. Um, but it also kind of is, like on a personal kind of friendship level, it's also really like exciting for me to see how some of those people like, you know, maybe they're not, you know, book, like I'm not booking the same like gritty little shows that 20 people go to anymore, but you're kind of doing something else that's still following that thread of like who you are, you know, and especially with, you know, COVID, like Blake Hargraves, who started Fluorescent Friends, which was kind of like his curator name for booking gigs and doing art shows and stuff like that. He had this kind of fringe music festival called Cool Fest um, that he had been running 
between, you know, Ottawa and Montreal for the last 15 years or whatever. And so this year, you know, he decided to put together this kind of, um, he has like a TV channel on YouTube. So he put together kind of like a digital record of participants of Cool Fest in the past and kind of, you know, new friends. And I thought that was kind of like a lovely tribute to the spirit of that festival, kind of like little kind of greetings from people like people like Andy White who in Florida, like saying what's up and Chris from Michigan, you know, and it's kind of, that was really nice. I think like kind of way to carry on the tradition of Cool Fest, but like reimagine it a bit for what this moment is asking for. It's, it's, a, it's a bit hard to, to find the words to say this because like you don't want to say, or I don't want to say, um, you know, look at the bright side of this pandemic, you know, when there's like people dying all the time and, and people getting sick and people who don't have the same like luxury that, that I do of working from home or whatever. Uh, but having said all that, like, I think that if you have that good fortune, like it can sort of bring into focus the things that are important, actually important to you. A hundred percent. And I, and I think that, you know, I'm not the only person I know who's kind of trying to understand or unpack sort of shame or guilt that we, that I feel around kind of doing well or having, you know, or feeling like 2020 kind of set up some good things for me too, you know, like, losing my job in the moment felt, you know, it felt horrible. Um, but, you know, then I, you know, wrote a, um, I finished my book proposal, sold the book over the summer, and now I'm like writing a cookbook, you know? And, and so I, I'm trying to like, it helps me kind of put those things in perspective, but also I feel really wary about talking about them because everyone's like, I lost everything or, you know, people around me are, are, are sick and that's true. But, you know, I think for me on a personal kind of professional level, um, there are a lot of things that I feel super grateful for, you know? Yeah. I don't think I knew about that, um, with your book. That's great news. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's cause like, I feel weird talking about it. You know, I, it's like, great get great news it's like yeah people want to hear good news too but i think it's it's still so nascent still in such early stages i kind of feel like there's not a lot to share about it yet but um right. it is going to be a pastry kind of dessert cookbook but you know i'm really inspired by um people like i don't know if you know brooks headley like one of the greatest pastry chefs in New York City, but, you know, he's also like a hardcore drummer. And I think that, you know, he also didn't go to pastry school. Like his like sense of self is hugely influenced by like the music that he likes and stuff like that. And his first cookbook kind of talks about, you know, touring and shows and music in a way that feels really authentic to him and to his story. And I'm very inspired by that approach, you know, like not just, mm -hmm. not just this is a cookbook, you know, here are the recipes, but like, this is me, like, this is what I'm about. And these are the things that I'm into. So it's, it, there might be some other stuff might kind of seep in, you know, just as a product of like, you know, trying to make a genuine expression over the things that mean something to me right now um yeah 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 sure. so we'll see you know like i think a lot of 
professional chefs that are busy or running restaurants or running owning businesses, you know, bring on other people to kind of help them write the cookbook. That's very common. But it was really important to me that like I well write the thing myself. Like that's why I want to do it. You know, so it's a insane. Um, it feels really overwhelming now, and it's hard for me to talk about it without feeling anxious. But um, yeah, you know. Well, I totally understand that, of course. Um, but uh, I would say that you know, people, um, everyone's got different skills, and some people get people to uh, to help them with writing because they don't know how. But you're a good writer, mm. so you'll, you'll you'll be fine. Thanks, but you know. Um, yeah. So uh, coming back to our theme. Uh, the the sort of theme of of this podcast and this whole project, uh, which also began for me as a book proposal and may still turn into that, who knows? Cool. Um, is um, why we why we we like the music that we like, and and dislike, you know, and hate the music that we hate. Um, and so I was always curious. Uh, well, first, when you when you were involved in in putting on shows and and stuff. What kind of music, did you have a specialty of genre or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, obviously, like, you know, there's plenty of music that I love, but, you know, don't have the tools or connections or bandwidth to execute. What I was doing was kind of more on the kind of DIY um, kind of avant-garde circles, and that really, like, started for me when I was living in Ithaca because while there's music going on everywhere every night, it's kind of more of the sort of within like roots traditions, like roots rock, reggae, you know, which is fine. But I, the, something that I was really missing and I felt like wasn't happening were kind of like more sort of avant-garde, like dissonant, weird, kind of droney, noisy, uh, more like conceptual, harsher music. That was kind of what mm -hmm. I was really into at the time, you know? And so I was really just booking shows that, you know, of bands that I liked and wanted to see play. Like, I think a lot of people who are show promoters or curators are just like, yeah, I, you know, you, you book the things that you love. Like, that's the whole point. Like, otherwise, why would you do it? Um, and from there, like the, the, you know, kind of North American, European sort of noise scenes of the early aughts, I think had like this big moment because there were bands like, you know, Wolf Eyes were kind of on sub pop and they were like this household name. And then, you know, you've always had kind of mainstream rock and roll bands like Sonic Youth repping kind of more like the fringier weirdos on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there was kind of this moment where like it, the scene was super flourishing, you know, through like things like the No Fun Festival in Brooklyn. Like I would drive to Brooklyn and go to see things like that. And so I kind of carved out a niche for myself in the cities I, you know, lived in of kind of booking bands that sort of worked within those traditions and those kind of forms. Yeah. You know, obviously like it can go kind of more highbrow and kind of more like grungy, but you know, it, and that was one of the exciting things about that world to me at that time was, you know, you had, you know, people like Peter Bratzman hanging out with writers like David Keenan and hanging out with, you know, 
like 19 year olds from Detroit and like Argentinians in Brooklyn. And I kind of liked how diverse it was in that way. But also it was a scene that was full of problems. You know, the music was mostly made by men, mostly made by like hetero white men. And, you know, you, you weren't seeing a lot of women at those shows. And if you were like, maybe those, you know, guys are gonna like try to talk to you or they assume you're somebody's girlfriend and you're just tagging along. And those were the kind of um, like preconceived notions that kind of come from what, you know, what you see with kind of these like outsider communities, like, you know, guys who maybe are like bitter or, or resentful in some way. And so they really leaned into their, and I'm generalizing, but I'm just saying like, as a woman, you know, I definitely experienced like, and especially with some of that kind of music where it's like very physical or aggressive or, you know, like power, power electronics, you know, doom, like drone. It's like, these are like kind of, signifiers of like macho-ness or aggression and on a cathartic level when you're listening to it it feels really deep and it feels really free you know and I think that's like why I loved it so much was the kind of the catharsis that comes from those sort of live shows and the freedom from traditional forms and you know, instrumentation and, you know, I was, I loved all of the music side of it, but there were some things about the culture of it that are hugely problematic that we're still seeing manifesting today with people like, you know, Ariel Pink and John Mouse at the, you know, Capitol, uh, you know, break-in that happened last week. And, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. that kind of whole edge lord art bro, you know, it's this idea of like, I could rant about this forever, but it's, they're sort of following these conceptual threads to these nihilistic ends, you know, because they're making uh-huh. a documentary or something. But I'm like, you, this is like a vile thing that you're participating in. This is the epitome of white privilege that you can come here as a spectator and like try to create some kind of art around it. You know, it's so ironic. It becomes like offensive to me. Um, yeah. and that's almost giving them credit that they're like, you know, I, who knows, but so I think, and again, like, you know, so when I moved to Montreal, I was kind of like very interested in cultivate and being a part of a community or a friends that felt like more gentle, more inclusive, um, you know, you know, meeting, meeting women in the scene, like. Catherine Klein, who is in Dreamcatcher, um, you know, Emily Pelstring, Jess, Jessica Mensch, um, you know, Layla Majeri, like there, there were lots of great women that I met through there that were like, had weirder and crazier and deeper taste in music. And those are the people that I always felt like so um, drawn to and like inspired by, you know, and they were kind of making weird feminist, smart art, you know, that's still played into these kind of forms of, of music that like, I love so much, you know? Yeah. Well, there's so much there in what you just said. Um, and, uh, I wanted to go back over some of it, like that. I, 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 I'm always curious about that scene. Um, it's not, it's never really been my thing musically, but I'm always kind of fascinated by it and I draw from it too. Um, and like, I, 
I, I, I, I have noticed, although I've never really articulated it until you just said it, that like, it's interesting because it brings in really sort of um, like high culture in quotes, uh, you know, avant-garde music, but then together with like total dirt bags, totally just like fucking around basically. Um, and, and everything in between. And um, yeah. And also, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, and I think like the appropriation can get really tricky also because, you know, a lot of these um, little kind of subcultures are influenced by like, you know, raga or kind of forms of music that are not within a Western tradition, but have become popularized by people like you know, John Faye or something like that. And so then you're seeing kind of like a lot of white guys with beards, like doing, you know, elaborate raga. And it just feels a little bit like, are we contextualizing, you know, where these traditions are coming from or, you know, and, and that, those conversations became a little bit, you know, com complicated for me, you know, to untangle. For sure, for sure. Um, and I also, w w when you talked about like, this weird, the sort of like toxic male element in it. I, I have this recollection of going probably the last time that I went to a noise show, which was to support um, one of our, one of, one of the deaf people. And uh, it, it was a show at Brasserie Beaubien and, and there were like five acts and uh, there were a lot of, it, it was, it was pretty diverse as far as there were a lot of women, trans folks and everything. And then this, this dude got up who was playing this music, which, you know, honestly, I kind of like the music. It was just like, if I made noise music, I think this is what it would be. Just like incredibly harsh, hostile uh, music. But he was like wearing a leather baseball cap and like pumping his fist. And then and then the people who came to see him, I was like, what? Is it their noise bros? Like I didn't. Absolutely. I knew about this. Oh, there's and so many Olivia noise bros. Dumas, who we both know from the depth, like uh, came to the door. And just like I was watching the show and seeing Ollie at the door and she just like looked at this guy performing on stage with this classic Ollie look of just like pure contempt and yes. then walked away without never, without even entering the, the venue. Love her. I mean, and what's, what's so, what's such a shame is that, you know, this kind of performance is inherently it's so theatrical, you know, they're they're so physical and there's so many big movements and it could be like joyful and, you know, huge and fun. But the thing is, is that these bros take themselves so seriously that their sense of self-importance and ego kind of like it, 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 it actually like stops them from like performing in a way that feels like more inclusive for everybody, you know, and it just becomes this like parody or caricature. And that can be really hard to, to engage with because you're like, what's your, where's your self-awareness with like what this performance is, you know? So I think that yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, and for me, like loving all that music, you know, it is so driven by the live performance. Um, you know, I buy records, I buy music and download stuff for sure. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just different. You know, like you go, I think with any underground music scene, you're going to see a band, but you're also going to hang out, you know, with Olivia and you're going to see your friends and you're going to like, you know, stand around and kind of shoot the shit and like, it's the scene, you know? And so 
like it's for me it's not something that I did that was about being in my apartment with my headphones on or like listening to music it was kind of something that was bolstered by the fact that it was something physical you could do with other people so you know once sure. I started working full-time in restaurants I it that really fell off for me a lot and um I kind of unless friends kind of come, come to me and are like oh you know listen to this like it's hard for me to like keep up with with everything you know absolutely i think that's you know it's partly just you know getting older <laughs> um but uh but yeah you have to have you have to have c connections and gatekeepers or whatever yeah um so um i'm curious uh again just coming back to this whole like noise and avant-garde music like how did you get into that because it's like music that you know inherently like most people don't like it, you know, when they hear it, most people don't want to hear something dissonant. And so I'm like, uh, I'm curious, like, do you remember where, how you first got into that kind of music, how it made you feel like, what was it that appealed to you? I mean, I also like love melody. I love pop music. Like, you know, I love music. I, I, he I hear what you're saying, but you know, that to me is still, is such a, like a small part of like, my musical identity and the things that I love. Like, I wish you were here and we could like go through my records and talk about everything. Cause a lot of it is probably stuff that you know really well. But um, I think for me, like growing up in Southern California, um, I grew up listening to like a lot of kind of punk and pop punk of the kind of mid to late nineties, you know, like mm -hmm. I loved, you know, like Jawbreaker. I don't, I can't even like get into it. It's like too embarrassing to reflect upon, but. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no embarrassment in, in what, what you listen to as a, as a young person, I think. Like, sure. Yeah. To... No embarrassment. Absolutely. It's all who I am. It's all like part of who I am for sure. But I remember watching this like video that, SST had this record label from LA that had made SST and because I was really into that band Bad Religion like I was in middle school or something I was in like seventh grade sure, sure. and that was how I found out about Black Flag and I feel like that kind of LA SoCal early sort of heart punk was a big gateway for me because the way I don't know if your brain works this way but like I would get into a band and then I would see what label they were on and then I would listen to all I would figure out what the deal was with all of the other bands on that label you know and with a record label like SST you know that was how I heard about Sonic Youth when I was in high school was because they had some like some of their records from the 80s were on that label too so it really was such like a jumping from stone to stone kind of place like you know loving Black Flag you know loving Ray Pettibon and then figuring out what other artwork he had done for other bands, you know, and it really kind of went from there. Yeah. And again, like, I think that, you know, a lot of those um, bands that kind of are more, operate more in like rock and roll idioms, like punk mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, but there, there's still like a lot of fun offshoots to kind of more abstract, harsher, kind of more dissonant things. And but I think for me, like the the breakthrough didn't really come until I was in college. 
because there at Cornell there was this um, like most universities, kind of a student club that would book little shows on campus, um, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing Wolf Eyes play a spring break show, and I. I think I was a freshman and I just happened to be on campus because I was on the rowing team and for spring break, every, everyone on the campus would leave, but we were gearing up for (laughs) our like sprint season of the spring. So everyone had to stay on campus and train, which was brutal, but there's nothing to do. You're just like rowing all day long, but they had, Uh but the fan club collective had booked this wolf eye show like, the day after spring break began. And so no one was there, you know? And I remember they were really pissed because we didn't, the club didn't make their guarantee, which was like, it was like $400 or something, but they didn't make the guarantee at the door. And it was kind of like left a bad taste in everyone's mouth, I think. But, you know, watching the show, being there, you know, I think that, you know, there's just a way of kind of listening to music. It's not shapeless because it has its own shape. But Mm -hmm. if you're kind of looking for a hook or a riff or something like that, you're not going to find it. But I think that's like what I liked about it was kind of like trying to think about music, you know, through that negation and kind of um, through like a different vocabulary and and feeling that sense of like peace or energy or catharsis or dread you know and and I I found that there was such a rich kind of world to sort of enter in and I think like you know I love like a lot of free jazz and a lot of kind of more open music and you know I think that there's a this very similar kind of approach um in terms of like you know, it not being like a traditional structure. And I really, you know, I've, I've just responded really strongly to, to it. Yeah, that's cool. You know, my brother, who's a, who's a free jazz musician, um, said something really interesting to me recently about that. I was sort of saying to him, like, you know, I have trouble listening to some of your music because there's nothing for me to like latch onto. And, and he said, well, you know, I have something like a an underlying rhythm or but it's like inside my mind Whoa. when i'm when i'm playing cool and i and i don't want to put words in his mouth because i i can't i'm totally paraphrasing but i felt like what he was saying was like the you the listener find the um the the, the grounding thing or you make it up inside inside your mind to, to give some grounding to this abstract open sonic uh escape which i thought was really interesting I, I don't know if I've tried it out yet, but I, I think I'm, I'm going to next time I uh, find myself listening to that kind of music. Um, so, okay. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I Yeah, you talked about, like, I, I like that idea that, like, some people might go from bad religion to, like, Green Day and then points further into the pop spectrum. But you went from bad religion to, like, SST to Sonic Youth to Wolf Eyes and kind of, like... Totally. Um I was I was more like almost in a media kind of consumer way. Like if I liked a band, I would read uh, like the magazines and fanzines, and if they they said like they would compare a band to someone I liked, and then mention another couple of names, then I would seek those out. 
Totally. That's, that's, I, I think I did the same thing actually. I would even read like the liner notes in like a CD or something and see if they were thanking other bands. Like that was like another yeah. thing that you could see and you can kind of get a sense of like what the crews and the, you know, going, you know, and looking at tours like at Bills and, and seeing what the bands were and like, you know, it, it totally, yeah. I think when you're like, when you love music, you just like kind of want to devour up all of those all of those resources, you know? I I, th I mean, certainly I was a, a, a obsessive liner note reader. I wonder if like, you know, today, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure there are still kids who do that, but probably many uh, people just listen to music uh, like online. Totally. And maybe don't have, don't, you know, they don't even have the liner notes to, to look at, but yeah. they must do their research in some other way, like with through following links on Bandcamp or something. And I think that's why I still like, you know, a lot of this like outsider, like avant-garde music, because I think there's inherently kind of an appreciation also for like design and the object and because they're making those things for people who like love to have a record or, or appreciate those details. And, you know, people like today like to listen to singles and, and, and you know, this and that, and they're not really, but I think if, if you're into kind of these more left field things, like you're still going to get, you know, beautiful design, thoughtful, you know, text like this. My friend Pete Swanson, um, who was in kind of like a seminal, if I could say that, <laughs> it sounds so pretentious, but he was in kind of a really influential for me, American noise duo of the early aughts called Yellow Swans. Okay. Has also made like, a ton of beautiful music solo and collaborated with other people. But now he and some of his friends um, run this kind of micro label called Freedom to Spend, which sort of um, assembles these thoughtful, they're, they're not really reissues because in many cases they've never been released at all. They're kind of more mm -hmm. the, and they're not bound by um, genre or era um it's truly just things that they think are insanely special and that they want to share with people that people haven't seen yet so like you know ursula k Le Guin in the 80s wrote with the composer todd barton a you know imagined world of this like imaginary people called the kesh and then they wrote basically like a whole suite of music that's kind of like it's, I guess it's a little bit new agey, you know, it's sort of ambient, it's kind of mm -hmm. sort of gentle. There's a lot of kind of percussive soft elements and some like kind of beautiful poetry and spoken word stuff. But the way that they have assembled this record is so extraordinary because they have reprinted kind of um, in, in sheafs of paper, kind of original documents um, they had created like a, like a made up kind of notation system and these drawings are reproduced Whoa. and it's really, you know, so I think for me, like somebody who loves music, owning a record like this is very meaningful because, you know, there, there's so much consideration being put, not just into this kind of remarkable musical document, but there's so many other things that sort of you know, satellites around it that they've also preserved and shared with people. So 
you know, I think that that's something you're always going to see kind of on the fringes with these kind of super niche avant-garde kind of labels. And, you know, it's it's really cool. And and they still also have the downloads and like, you know, all that too. Yeah, yeah. So I have this memory at one point uh, from your Montreal years where you you declared that like you could never date someone who wasn't into into noise or free jazz. <laughs> Oh my I, I god! Thought, I that's like it's very, very embarrassing. But yes, okay. <laughs> I just thought that really must narrow the dating pool, like really. I think really I, severely. I, I I like regret how like black and white that sen that sentence is, but <laughs> I think it's more. Of course, like I don't think I've ever dated anybody seriously who was into any of that stuff. So obviously as a dating philosophy, it hasn't been very successful. I think <laughs> for me, what's important, the takeaway, I think what I meant, but was probably too young and arrogant and stupid to like know how to put it nicely, was just like, I just want to be around people who are like open-minded and curious and you know, willing to try something different. You know, I've certainly dated pe men and are friends with people, you know, that I was like, do you want to come to this show with me? I feel like you might be into this aspect of the story or this part of the setup or, you know, and, and that though, and that is attractive to me. If someone's like, oh, like, you know, and I'm kind of like, well, you're sort of missing the picture. I, I mean, I feel that way with food too. Like a picky eater, like if a, if a man is like, I don't, want to eat like this weird food I'm kind of like whoa this sort of means to me like you're you know you have intellectual curiosity you're not there's some you like living in fear you know and I think that I feel that with music too it's like how can you like you know just say like I don't like this this is not for me like I just consider myself to have like pretty eclectic taste so if there's an if there's like a stellar example of something in a genre, like I'll probably like can at least appreciate it in terms of like, you know, the context of how it was made or like, you know, whatever. But well, I didn't yeah. mean to embarrass I mean, you. I just always <laughs> thought that was a really funny uh, thing that you, <laughs> that you said. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I, I I know what you mean, and I think that it's actually like the the um, the, the revised version of it is a very good uh, philosophy. Yeah, it's just like be curious, you know, and 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 be willing to try something, whether it's like a dish you haven't had or like a kind of music, you know, and obviously like if people like are complaining about op free music as being too open are kind of missing the point because like that is sort of the point, you know, so it's kind of like, OK, once you've gotten over the hump of like the things that it's not that where it makes you uncomfortable, it's, you know, and this has really been like a theme of this past year in a way, which is all about like really sitting inside of that uncertainty. And I think that like a lot of that music that really grabbed me, I think there were things about it that made me feel tense or like actually like triggered like, um, like a strong feeling inside of me. And part of that music asks you to sort of like be inside of that uncomfortable place and sort of it, sit within it you know and i think that like that's really can be really valuable too like there's music that can be physically taxing to listen to there you know there's but then you have to kind of think well like well 
is there a moment where I can like break through what that feeling is and then, you know, approach something a little bit closer to grace, for example, you know? And I think that like, if you have an open mind, if you're feeling curious, it's, it's, you can actually get there instead of just being like, this music doesn't have the things that I think that I need, you know? Instead it's like, well, it's offering you something different, you know? It's not replacing the like great, you know, rock and roll and pop songs that you love. It's something else, you know? Yeah. That's so true, and and that's that's very wise actually. I think that I probably need to like take on a little bit more of that of that attitude myself. Um, but uh, you know, I love your enthusiasm, and I remember like you know back when 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 you lived in Montreal, like if you said like, "Hey, like come to this show tonight, it's going to be awesome." Like I I was always I was always convinced your enthusiasm was always so infectious well that 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 was like my kind of like show booker side showing you know where i'm like living in ithaca and this is not montreal like you know i mean sure ithaca is packed with intellectuals and cool curious people but like there wasn't a scene for weird music like montreal had that scene you know through venues like casa or whatever so like in ithaca i really did have to like convince people to come to shows you know and i and i was trying to just put butts in the seats but i'm like look i really think that you're gonna like this and then you have people coming in who've never you know seen seen anything like that before and if they you know even if one person is like amazed at the end it always felt so fucking good you know and like in ithaca for example like there's a huge kind of old time kind of string band fiddle music scene, you know, that thrives there. And I would have, and I knew I was friends with a lot of people in those scenes. And so very accomplished musicians, you know, like they're playing music every single day, but then they would like come to my shows and they would be like, wow, like this is like far out. This reminds me of like seeing Zappa in 81. And like, this reminds me of this like Beefheart record that I haven't thought about in a while and or this like Max Roach solo that I haven't you know got like that I was my favorite and that to me was incredible was seeing how people from different places were connecting their dots on their own terms with their own references and their own context you know and 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 that I think is like kind of what music is all about like I can I don't want to push something on someone too much it's like you show as a curator, like you just want to show something that you think is great. And then people kind of form their own associations and think of things that they love, you know, based on themselves, you know. Totally. Um, I just wanted to ask you one other thing, um, which is the, um, you, did you ever, pl did you ever play music? Yeah, I, uh, well, I played classical piano for like maybe seven or eight years like with lessons like also um doing some concerts and but very traditional classical mm -hmm. you know um some competitions but not really and in high school i for two years i was in my high school's jazz band okay so okay. super cool um i was the only woman in the jazz band um what was but it was instrument? a piano okay. sorry yeah piano yeah well I, I would do piano and keyboards um depending on you know what the piece called for <laughs> yeah but i you know like 
I'm not a performer though. Like I kind of quickly realized that like about myself, like I had a really hard time. Like, I think I was so, my classical training was so like strict and kind of like controlled that I had a really hard time kind of improvising. And I was playing with all these guys around me who kind of would, they were so loose, they would make mistakes and not care. And they would kind of have fun and get like really into it. And I always felt like really tightly, like kind of bound up. Like it was hard for me to just like make mistakes and like go off script. Like that was really hard for me. Um, but I, you know, I loved it. We would like play the finish line at the end of like a half marathon <laughs> or right. like, you know, like we do like little recitals and yeah, I, I, I view myself more as like a, on the other side of things, you know, I love like organizing shows, making it all happen, promoting it, like, you know, designing the flyer, like getting everything ready, you know, and this is also where food kind of would come into it in such a big way too, was like, you know, I, I felt like these musicians that I was booking were on tour and they were like either eating the crappiest food, buying from, and I'm sure you have memories of like going on tours world provider and just being like people feeding you like the same curry, you know, this, the same like brown rice and no shade obviously to any of those things. But you know, I would kind of hear enough stories from people and I would think like, wow, that I should make something like really special and delicious that will like, you know, and people really like responded so strongly to that aspect of the hospitality that I was providing, you know, kind of precluded, kind of alluded towards like future restaurant stuff. You know, I loved feeding people like I loved that side of it. Um, I always kind of enjoyed like that side of things, being the yeah. organizer, putting a bill together, you know, like, so not, not really a performer per se. <laughs> I mean, my parents have a, my parents have a baby grand piano and it's really beautiful. It's incredible. And it, you know, I think they hang on to it because they keep hoping that like when I come home, I'll sort of, but I think that like I trained on the piano. So, you know, all of grade school through graduating high school, like so intense, it was kind of like, playing a sport, you know, like you drop off playing or training for several hours out of a day and your skills atrophy in a way where it's like depressing to try and play again, you know? And I think that if I could be a little bit more okay with that and be like, well, I'm not 15, I'm like 36, like, you know, can I still enjoy this? Well, that's, uh, thank you for, uh, for doing this. It's awesome to talk to you. I know. It's so great to thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great. I think like I really think back on my time in Montreal with like so much like fondness and love, even though it wasn't I wasn't there for that long. I think that it was really important phase for me, like era of my life in so many ways, because it was where I like started cooking and everything kind of co co coalesced for me there in this like way. And, you know, if I could have figured out a way to like stay there longer i would probably still be there but you know well that's in new york many many uh many people feel that they like they can't accomplish what they want to in in uh in montreal um yeah i think that's why like in as a musician you sort of can have the best of both worlds of being able to go out on tour and and go other places but then have a have it as a 
place to come back to. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously like New York was where all of the kind of food and pastry stuff really like kind of took off for me because the industry around it is so um, competitive and intense here. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I really think that like Montreal as a city that sort of embraces like um, eating, revelry, um, you know, great food, ingredients, the markets, everything like that. That was really the place where I was like, oh, music into food. Like it makes sense. It's not like a jarring adjustment. It's all part of this like quality of life that's like in Montreal that I loved so much, you know. Well, that's our show. Thank you, Natasha, for being on it. You can find Natasha Pickowitz on Instagram, where she shares uh, recipes, events, stories, and thoughts. You can find me, Malcolm Fraser, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And there is a What Is This Music Facebook page. And there, along with the, uh, the podcast homepage, you'll find, as per What Is This Music tradition, uh, a playlist that Natasha made uh, especially for this episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening. See you next time.